Lord, as we enter this new year, I pray that as a church, Lord, together as a community, we would pour out our praise, that we would give everything we have to you because you are worthy of it all. You are so worthy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Well, today we're going to talk about something a little maybe unconventional. I don't know. It's in the Bible. So I guess that's good. Uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus and the book of Leviticus uh, and why they both matter. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about this is, well, I guess before I say that, do I have any Disney fans in the room? Like, do I have people who like Disney in here? Like, well, I was curious because Disney's like huge and they make so much money. I was like, how much money does Disney make in a year? And so in 2020 alone, the Walt Disney Company made $65 billion. That blew my mind. I was like, I can't, I can't conceptualize a billion dollars. I can't conceptualize a million dollars. I can't really conceptualize $100,000. Like, that is, like, that, you're laughing, but it's true. <laughs> uh, and that blows my mind. And I was thinking about why. Well, how do they make this much money? And I think the reason why is because they've created these worlds that you and I have fallen in love with. All, all these little girls here at this church go around talking about Anna from Frozen and Olaf and all this. And, or maybe some of us are big Star Wars fans. I know Boba Fett just started. It's a great episode. That first episode was awesome. Uh, or maybe The Mandalorian or whatever that was for you on, on Disney. We've all fallen in love with the world in Disney. And they've created this nostalgia. And I was thinking about this like, the Bible is about the exact opposite of that. Because the Bible was written in a completely different world than the world that you and I have today. And so because of that, when we're reading our Bible, when we make these New Year's resolutions to try to read through the Bible, we get to books like Leviticus, and this is kind of what happens. Can we show that meme up on the screen? This is what happens. You're at this bus trying to read the, the Bible in a year, and Leviticus comes in and ruins your plan. I don't know about you, but that's happened to me. Leviticus has killed my Bible reading plan before. And it's because the Bible was written to such a different world than you and I have today. We have to remember, Matt Chandler phrases it like this, the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The Bible was written to and during a completely different culture than you and I have today. And that's the reason why when we're reading we can miss so many things because we don't understand the culture and the context. And so we're missing all the nuances. And so that's why today I want to talk about the book of Leviticus and how that can actually change your reading when you're reading the Gospels. Because when Jesus was around in the first century in Jerusalem, in all of Israel, purity and defilement laws were huge. And we get these purity and defilement laws in Leviticus... 11 to 15, and then chapters 17 and 18. And so we're not going to go through all of those laws today, but I'm going to summarize that whole thing here for you like this, right? So purity and defilement was a way that they would reflect, the Israelites would reflect God's holiness, okay? So it's a state where they modeled God's holiness by separating from anything related to death. So there were all these things in Leviticus that were prohibited, right? So if you got a skin disease, you were labeled unclean. 
If you touched certain animals or ate certain animals, you were labeled unclean. If you, blood and other bodily fluids can make you unclean or defiled, and so could corpses and carcasses. Um, so we got to be thinking about this, okay? This, was, this is Leviticus 11 to 15, 17 to 18. And this understanding, this is one, I mean, this is a huge cultural value. In the same way that we honor, in our culture today, we love freedom and expediency and Amazon Prime and getting everything like this, this, and this. This culture valued purity and when they were defiled, being made pure again. Okay? And so Leviticus is all about that, how they can remain pure. Because that's how they would reflect God's holiness. Throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, what the Lord is concerned with is His people being holy like He is holy. That's why He's made us in His image. And so during this period, this is how they would reflect God's holiness, okay? Um, and let me clarify, this is something I, that kind of blew my mind. So when you're defiled, that's not necessarily a sinful state, okay? It can be, like there are certain sins that can defile you, but the act of being defiled is not sinful. Most of the time, it happened on accident. You're out hunting, and you accidentally stepped on a, a carcass of an animal. Like, okay, you've been defiled. And so what would happen is when you'd been def defiled, you would have to leave your community. You were exiled. Because the community has to represent God's holiness. Okay? And so you would sit out of the community until you performed the ritual cleansing, and then you could come back into the community where you were made pure again. So this is, this is the life of every Jew in Jesus' day. They are all operating from this understanding. And really, even a harsher understanding than Leviticus, because this was during the times of the Pharisees and scribes, where on addition to the 613 laws in Leviticus, they added a whole bunch of other ones just to make sure that they could follow those ones. Okay? So, I mean, the Pharisees, I mean, rule follower of rule followers. That's, so this is the context that Jesus is ministering in. So now I want to talk about why the mess does that matter? And here's why. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 8. Man, this gets, this gets so cool. I love this. This is a quick mind-blowing moment real quick while you're reading the Gospels. For the longest time, maybe it's not mind-blowing for you. It was mind-blowing for me when I read this. The Gospels aren't like just randomly thrown together. Like for the longest time, I was like, why are they so different? Like, they're all in different orders. None of them, like, some of the stories are the same. Some of them are different. Like, why are they like this? The reason why is every gospel author is trying to prove an argument, okay? And so in the book of Matthew, Matthew is trying to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so Matthew's gospel is incredibly Jewish. There's a lot of um, Jewish culture written into his gospel because he's trying to prove to Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, so that's why today, some of these stories are in Mark and in Luke, but we're going to look strictly in Matthew because he is going to see into a more Jewish lens for us today. All right? So in Matthew 8, 1-2, this is what it says. Then he, Jesus, came down from the mountain. Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Pause. So we have this leper. Real quick, so this doesn't mean leprosy, necessarily, okay? Like, this word leper is really just means skin disease. So we don't really know what the skin condition was. But so this leper comes in the middle of this great crowd to come to Jesus. Now, time out. In light of this period of defilement, let's talk about having a skin disease. 
Because having a skin disease is a lot different than the other forms of defilement. And here's why. For example, if you um, touched human blood, you were exiled for seven days. And then you could come back. However, if you got a skin disease, you are exiled until that skin disease goes away. So maybe it's a day. Maybe it's a lifetime. So this is, this is one of the only ones that's like this, to where it can be your whole life that you live exiled from your community in a state of being defiled. So this leper, for however long he's been an outcast and an exile, he comes to Jesus. And I imagine anyone else in the world would jump and run away. Who on earth is ever going to risk getting defiled for life for a stranger? And the coolest thing ever happens because Jesus doesn't do this. This isn't how he responds. What he says in Matthew 8, 3, and 4, it says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus touched him. He didn't get scared and run away. He doesn't run away. He actually leans in. He doesn't rebuke this man for threatening the whole crowd. He heals him. But more than healing him, he's just restored him back to life. From being exiled from his community and his family, now he is allowed back in. He is allowed to be with his family once again. Imagine if you were a Jew and you saw Jesus do this. Oh my gosh, he just touched that guy? What on earth is he thinking? Why would he ever do that? This was a horrible idea, Jesus. But what's crazy is, you know, I think if that were to happen today, he'd probably be all over the We Are Melissa page. He'd, he'd be all up over that page. And not in a good way. <laughs> That's one of my biggest fears is to end up on that page, you know? <laughs> it's one of my biggest fears. <laughs> uh, the Pharisees and those all, all, all these Pharisees, they just thought Jesus had defiled himself. And you guys, this happens over and over again. Jesus is constantly in conflict with the Pharisees. And over this purity and defilement issue, it happens a lot. And, but here's, here's what's crazy, is that for the first time in human history, purity wasn't contaminated. So when you were in this community, you were pure, and one touch can make you impure. Your purity couldn't transfer to someone else. But for the first time in human history, Jesus' purity flowed from himself into the lives of someone else. For the first time in history, Jesus' purity, it wasn't contaminated. It actually was contagious, and it spread to the leper. That's why Jesus didn't need to perform the ritual cleansing. He never does that in any of the Gospels because he doesn't need to, because his holiness cannot be tainted, because he is God and he is Lord. Jesus' love for the leper made him appear defiled and certainly despised. That's my first point. It should be up here. Um, 
and I think this challenges us, how often are we found worrying about what other people think? How often are we consumed with thinking, I wonder what they say about me, I wonder what they think about me. I know in my like prideful, evil heart, after the sermon, I'm going to be like, oh, I wonder what people are going to think about this message. Like, because we're broken. Like, I, we think like that, right? But if Jesus were to operate in that way, he could have never have healed the leper. He would have had to have abandoned the leper and turned the other way like everyone else has for his entire life. But Jesus doesn't do that. Out of his compassion and love, he heals and restores this man. And I think what this challenge is for us is our love for our own self-image. We, I think one of the biggest idols we worship is our self-image. We don't, we create these shrines on social media. We might not whittle wood and worship it in a temple, but what we do is we bow down to our phones and we sacrifice our time by creating, by editing these filters and getting these perfect images to do what? To worship our image. But this is not the way of Jesus. In our worship of our image, that's our pride. It's nothing short of our pride. Pride is, C.S. Lewis puts it like this, right? Like, pride isn't thinking too highly or too little of yourself. It's thinking about yourself, period. So the person who boasts about himself is prideful, and the person who's loathing and talking about how terrible they are is also prideful because they're thinking about themselves. Pride says, I'm the main character of the story. This is about me. And I operate from this lens of, how does this affect me? What does this say about me? But that's not what, that's not what Christ does here. So, well, friends, how do, we, how do we pursue this Christ-like humility? What does it look like for us to do this? Tim Keller puts it this way. We need to forget about ourselves. We need to shove ourselves to the side in order for God to be all, because he is all, and he is worthy of all. And why do we need this radical humility? Well, one, because Christ called us to it. So we need it right there, period, like in the story. But two, because we can't love other people well with pride. And look, I hate talking about pride because I really struggle with this, and so I feel incredibly hypocritical. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. Uh, she sees it up close and personal like probably nobody else. Because you guys, when love is fueled by our own desires and our own self-image, it's not love. It's manipulation. Humble love is genuine love. Humble love rests at nothing short of dying to ourselves and considering others more important. That is the love of Christ. Look, I'm the student minister here, so D-Now is exactly 12 days away, and so you know I'm going to plug D-Now whenever I get the opportunity, all right? So I think one of the, um, a great example of humble love here at our church is really this whole D-Now weekend, but I want to highlight one specific role that I think really shows humble love, and it's being a host home, and here's why. If you're a host home, you, you make the biggest risk probably of your whole year because you let 8 to 10 people, uh, sorry, students from 6th to 12th grade come 
and live in your house for a whole weekend knowing that they could break stuff, they could fall through a ceiling, they could... <laughs> that did happen. <laughs> but isn't that humble love to say, look, I don't care. I want to come, I want to give up my weekend to drive these students around, to connect with them so that they can see the gospel, so that they can believe it, and so that their lives can be changed. Isn't that so worth whatever gets broken in your home? Isn't that so worth giving up that time for two days? And you guys, in all honesty, we're 12 days away, and I need five host homes. And like, I'm being real. Like, I need, I need five host homes, and I've got 12 days to find them. And so if you are in town, and you've got a home in Melissa, I would please ask you to model Christ's humility and step up and be a host home. And that's not to say that being a cooking coordinator or a small group leader aren't important roles. Those are great roles. And if you're one of those, I'm very grateful for you. Those show the humble love of Christ too. But those lists are full. So <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm talking about the host home, all right? <laughs> Later on in Matthew 9, Jesus talks to this dad named Jairus. And his daughter's died. And what Jesus does is he grabs this, this girl's dead, cold hand, defiles himself again, and raises her to life. Jesus didn't have to touch the leper, and he didn't have to touch this, this cold, dead hand. How do we know that? Think of the story of Lazarus. Did he walk into the tomb and unwrap Lazarus and then say, all right, wake up, Lazarus? No. From the tomb, he declared, rise, Lazarus! And he rose. Jesus chose to do that in humble love. This whole purity and defilement thing, go, it keeps being an issue. So now if you open up your Bibles in Matthew 15, this is the next text we're going to talk about. Basically, the Pharisees are getting really upset, kind of like when your mom's gotten upset at you, for not washing your hands before you eat. Like, I don't know if your mom ever got upset with you for that. My mom was a clean freak, is a clean freak, she's alive. Uh, <laughs> and so, like, she would, like, always make us use hand soap, like, at the, you know. Uh, but, so the Pharisees get really upset, not because of germs, but because this was part of one of those extra laws that they had added, okay? So the Israelites are really upset at Jesus' disciples because they hadn't washed their hands before eating. And so... Why? Not because of the germs, because this was an extra law they added. So they were disobeying this extra law. And this is what Matthew 15, 10, 11 says. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of, out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then, the, so Jesus says this to the disciples, and they walk away, and the disciples are like, Hey, uh... I think you uh, really upset those guys. Like, they did not like that very much. And um, Jesus basically is like, I ain't scared. And then in Matthew 15, 18 to 20, he says this. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So what Jesus has just done is he's redefined purity 
as an inward reality instead of an outward action. Think about it, you guys. We dog on the Pharisees so much. Um, and I think that's also because we misunderstand Jesus' culture. You guys, the Pharisees were the people that everyone looked up to. They loved the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not a political party. They had no political power at all. All they had was the public sway of the people. There were about 6,000 of these Pharisees, and they loved Scripture. I mean, they knew it forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards again. I mean, like, they would memorize this whole thing. Like, it was, I mean, they were loved by all of Israel because they were viewed as the people who were going to help lead them to freedom. That the Pharisees were helping these people follow God's law so they could be found pure, so that when the Messiah would come, they would be free from this Roman occupation. They were loved. The Pharisees were loved, and they had so much public power. And Jesus has just flipped this on their heads. He goes, look, nope. And he says, it's no longer about your outside actions. It's about your internal reality. Because what's inside of you will show on the outside. Our defilement is now in our hearts. Our hearts are depraved and broken and wicked. And our world says to follow our hearts, and that is the stupidest thing ever. Don't ever do that. Our hearts are always wrong. Our desires are always disordered. Our defilement is the deadness of our spiritual life that we cannot come to God with these defiled and broken hearts. And the Pharisees can't believe this. Because it goes against everything they believe this whole time. And I know we dog on the Pharisees a lot, but I really think we aren't that different. Because I think we have a hard time believing this too just for a different reason. They couldn't believe this because of what they were clinging on to in Leviticus. But I guess my question is, how often are we found focusing on our actions instead of what's on the inside? We focus so much on what our bodies do and so little about the health of our souls. I mean, think about, I mean, I, I see this all the time. As, as, a, as a student minister, I see this all the time of, of parents who view me as the morality police. That, like, I'm here to make sure that your kid will be a good kid. That is not my goal. I don't, that, your kid's not a good kid. He won't be. None of them will. Because the, inside of their hearts, they are broken and depraved, and all of us are. So if that's your expectation, man, I'm going to be a failure of a student minister for you. Because that is not why I'm here. That's not why any of us should be here. We should be focusing on the state of our hearts. Let me give you an example. Um, so often, I, I, I see this in this way. We talk about purity uh, and talking about students not having sex before marriage as if like that's the goal of making sure you're a virgin before you get married, which is true. Like That's biblical, right? Like Sex is designed for marriage, designed in marriage. It's a great, beautiful thing. But it's not the goal. Like, the goal is not that. Like, I don't, like, that's not the goal. That's not the aim. That's not the vision at all. Why? Because if that's the goal, then all you're wanting is people who fearfully follow rules. And if you fearfully follow rules, how on earth is that a relationship? It's not. That's a religion. Jesus didn't die so we could fearfully follow rules. 
He died so that you could have life. He died so we could have life and have it abundantly so that we could have freedom from sin, but ultimately so that we could live for Him. That is, what, that is why He died. He didn't came to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So do I want all my students to wait to have sex until marriage? Undoubtedly. But is that the goal? No. The goal is to have students and families who deeply believe and widely share the gospel. The goal is to have students who know their Bibles because they thirst to know God. The goal is to have students who at the end of the day not, not ever go off the wrong path because it's not a matter of if they go off the wrong path. It's a matter of when. But it's when they go off the wrong path that they know how to get back. That's the goal. And shouldn't that be our goal? All of us, not just for students. And I think this is very timely. That's January 2nd, and we've all made these New Year's resolutions. How many of your New Year's resolutions are outward actions? Probably all of them. Lose weight, eat healthier, work out, read your Bible every day. These are all outward actions. Like, doesn't that just show how much we focus so much on these outward actions instead of our hearts and our souls and our internal realities? And so I guess my, I think what this passage challenges us to do, that maybe we need to look less on these outward actions and more at the state of our hearts. Have we truly given them over? Is Jesus truly the Lord and King over every area of my life? in my deepest hearts. What do I hold on to and white knuckle that doesn't belong to him? And because what's on the inside will show on your outward actions. But we have to make sure we're viewing it the right way. And here's the beautiful thing, you guys. So we've seen that, right? Jesus, he's brought a purity that cannot be contaminated. And now we have purity that's no longer an inward reality, but an outward action. But above this, you guys, why Leviticus is important and why when you get to your Bible reading plan, you should read it and enjoy it. I know, it's hard. Is because Jesus fulfills these laws. Look at Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and then the sprinkles of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The defilement of our hearts is covered by the purity of his forever. That at the end of the day, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He died and he raised three days later. Impurity is no longer a work, it's a relationship. That at the end of the day, even when we are prone to wander because we will, when we go back to focusing on this image that we want to craft, and we focus on these actions instead of what's inside our hearts, God's love for you never changes. Whether you're the most prideful person or the most humble person, his love never changes and there is nothing but grace. Whether you're the leper or the Pharisee, you're not called to perfection, you're called to Christ. You're not called to purify yourself. Christ has done that for you. Christ's death has cleansed the defilement and the sin of our hearts. And he's offered us a renewed and perfect purity that is so righteous and so good and so holy. And you don't have to do anything to get it or maintain it. 
Your quiet times don't make you pure. They help you know God more, and we should want to do that, and we should crave to do that, but they do not change your status before God. And we don't follow these Levitical laws, but we should know them. Because I hope, more than anything, that this has stirred your heart for Christ, seeing how his love for you is deeper than maybe you realized before. Because we have a new purity, a purity that's found in a person. So as you read Leviticus, I hope your heart is is stirred towards Christ. And if you don't have that relationship, if you don't know Christ, if he's not your Lord, please stick around. I would love to talk to you. I know one of our elders can't hear would love to talk to you. Because it could be a glorious day for you to know this gospel and believe it with everything you have. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing about how Christ will hold you fast. That this purity is eternal. That it lasts forever. You did nothing to gain it and you can do nothing to lose it. So please, let's boldly proclaim this gospel that we believe in. When I feel my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. The tempter would prevail. He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path.
hold you fast so so fast follow me and pray dear lord thank you that you are so good and we are so undeserving but that you would only shine your goodness and your love all the more god i pray that this would motivate how we see ourselves that we would let you be all that we would abandon our image so that we could bear yours Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.